We're going to have a fascinating experience tonight as we get to a chapter of the confession that many theologians, many people that I have great respect for call the forgotten chapter of the Westminster Confession. I think that's probably a little bit strong, but it points to a reality that uh, this 26th chapter of the confession, which is on the communion of the saints, seems in some ways to many people a bit redundant. And there's a degree of of validity to that, but only a very small degree. What this chapter is about, and it's very short, just three paragraphs, but it is the essence of everything that the church is about, and especially a group and a gathering of a church of Gentiles, Uh, we don't understand the uniqueness of this, but we will get to it in a minute, perhaps, and understand it a little bit better. But this uh, chapter, chapter 26, I've I've given you another handout, by the way, in case you would like to, uh, to just review very simply, although the ending of this handout on the back side Uh, has a little bit of an extended treatment of something that will unravel as we go because this is the essence of chapter 26, the communion of the saints. Now, you you hear the title of that chapter and you have a probably an understanding of what it's about. The first two of the three paragraphs are where most of the meat uh, resides in this. But let's look at chapter 26, paragraph 1. It reads this way, all saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, in his sufferings, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces, and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. That is quite a statement that uh, covers essentially everything you and I will do until we are called home uh, to heaven. In fact, indeed, you see that long array of of uh, scripture passages, and you could literally, uh, you could you could take a hundred times that, because you really never get out of the out of this orbit. The, the communion of the saints is essentially everything that a Christian does, one way or another, for the entirety of his or her life. But as, as I mentioned, it's maybe that's why they call it forgotten. They just it's too big. It's it's too big a thing to to grasp. Uh, Chad Van Dixhorn says something I think is, is very helpful here. He says, in moving from chapter 25, which we saw last week's chapter on the church, to chapter 26, the confession shifts from the topic of the headship of Christ with his whole church to the union of Christ with every individual Christian. So you're, you're leaving behind... Uh, macro concerns, and you're entering down into more micro concerns is what we get to. This first paragraph basically shows three, answers three questions. First, how we are united to Christ. 
Secondly, how we have fellowship with him. What does that mean to have fellowship with Christ? And thirdly, how we are to find communion with the saints. What, what is the communion of the saints? What does it look like? And how broad a concept is it? Well, when we look at the first question, how we are united to Christ, we are savingly united to Christ. <clears throat> These phrases, in Christ and in union with Christ, come up frequently in the New Testament. We'll look at that a little more uh, broadly in a minute. Uh, but we are joined to Christ by the gift of faith, which is a gift from the Holy Spirit. So that's the short answer. Uh, how do you become united with Christ? You come united to Christ by faith. Uh, genuine Christian faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. Now, rather than go through all of those verses, I'm going to pick on just one of them, but I'm going to expand it a little bit, and that's from Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, this would be a very good, uh, <clears throat> very good opportunity if any of you bought, uh, brought a Bible with you uh, to follow as I read, as I say, an expanded aspect of this passage. The confession is, is um, drawing attention to uh, what is close to the end of the third chapter of Ephesians. Now, Ephesians is a fascinating book on, on many levels, among them because this is a church where Paul spent more time than any other church that he ministered to or planted. Uh, you remember that very poignant departure in the book of Acts where he's leaving these elders behind. And it's difficult for him to do, and it's difficult uh, for the elders and the members of this church to do. And this book I think expresses some of that heartfelt attachment that Paul felt toward this, this church. But in particular, this book of Ephesians uh, has a, a taproot, if you will, that, that um, breaks through the ground, breaks through the surface of the book and, and provides shade and uh, sustenance to the entirety of this book. And that is the marvel that Paul found it to be that he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Remember who this man is. This, this man uh, is the, the Jew of Jews. This man is, um, uh, is in all categories of significant accomplishment uh, as a Jewish religious person. This man has um, basically retired the trophy on just about all of them, and yet he is the man Though he has held the cloaks of those who would stone Stephen to death, he is the man uh, that God is going to send forth to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And that's something he never, ever got over. Not that just the fact that, that we've got Jews and now Gentiles, but the fact that Paul is beginning to see, and he describes it well in this book of Ephesians, this purpose of God that has been running since the beginning of time. I'm going to start in the 11th verse of chapter 2. And I want you to keep those thoughts in mind because Paul frankly cannot contain himself. From here to the end of chapter 3, this is what's on his heart. This is what's on his mind. He even breaks his own thought pattern in, in chapter 3. Uh, Forgive me for a second to just allude to this. You see the first verse of chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of, behalf of you Gentiles. And then you say that long line. 
because he doesn't continue that. He doesn't continue that thought. He's drawn into something uh, that's deeper, and he's uncovering that. Now, if you go down to verse 14 of chapter 3, he picks that thought up again. So the long line at the end of verse 1, pick up again on on verse 14, which says, for this reason, he returns to that uh, initial salvo, for this reason, he says, I bow my knees before the Father. In other words, this this scheme, this plan that God the Father uh, has put in place, Paul, Paul, I've got to think he was down on his knees most of the time uh, and, and marveling at this, but let's pick it up in chapter 2, verse 11. Now, you remember how the book of Ephesians begins with that incredible opening salvo from verse 3 to 14 in chapter 1, where he's talking about predestination, the the fact that God has planned everything he's planned from before the foundation of the earth. Uh, Well, when you get to uh, chapter 2, verse 11, it says this, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now just pause right there, Gentile believer, and realize that without this purpose of God grafting you and myself into the glories of Jesus Christ. We're still out there with no hope uh, and uh, alienated strangers to the covenants of promise, all of those things. He picks up in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I'm going to, uh, when we hit verse 19, Paul, (laughs) Paul thankfully never took an English course, so he mixes metaphors and we are much, much better off because of it. Uh, he's going to come through a number of, of he, he's attempting to, to give uh, categorization to this incredible thing that Jew and Gentile are now grafted together. Beginning in verse 19, he says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Uh, so you see Paul trying to, uh, to put these metaphors together. He, he calls this, this union of Gentile and Jew into what we call the church of Jesus Christ, 
He calls it God's city. He calls it God's family. He calls it God's temple. And relative to God's temple, he says this, this temple has a foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It has a cornerstone in Jesus Christ himself, and we are the building blocks of it. And all of this coming together is what is going to compose the communion of the saints. Let's continue in verse or chapter 3 here. Uh, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, we, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I, do, I don't uh, really have words for that, <clears throat> for that uh, passage and what we have, have just read, other than uh, to humbly... I say thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, that you have united all these things in the church. This is what we call the church. And the church is composed of the building blocks. That's you, that's me, that's every Christian. Uh, that's uh, Christians in Poland, that's Christians in Costa Rica, that's Christians anywhere on this planet who have ever, are, and will ever draw breath. That is is what this communion encompasses. Now that's the first part of this first paragraph of how you get this connection. You get it through faith engrafted into this, into this church by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the second question, once you are united to Christ by faith imparted by the Holy Spirit, the Christian then engages in whole-souled fellowship with Christ now, what does that mean? How do, 
How can we engage in fellowship with Jesus Christ? Well, the, I'll give you just a few ideas uh, based on the words of the confession in paragraph one, knowing Christ's love for us and loving him in return. We'll get into this word love a little bit uh, more thoroughly in a moment. Learning, here's a second component, learning from Christ, speaking to him, praying to him, all of these things that were so wonderfully prayed for a while ago uh, that we would take these opportunities were given. Here's another component, sharing in his graces. Now, the sharing in his graces, as the words of the confession say, includes sharing in his sufferings. It includes sharing in his death, his resurrection, his glory, and his reign. Uh, these things so often are missed by Christians. We don't understand that because of the sovereign, purposeful love of God, you and I will be sent through suffering. It's a way that, that, that God will use to build us up and to make us into the people he wants us uh, to be. One, there's a uh, fascinating paragraph earlier in the confession that I think we don't quite listen to closely enough. It comes from uh, Westminster Confession, chapter 5, paragraph 5. Listen to what this says. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence on their support for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. We tend to think that we're supposed to be and in one sense, indeed, we are commanded to be more and more mature, growing in our faith so that things should get better and better. Uh, scripture never promises things are going to get better and better. Uh, in point of fact, they promise that we are going to share as part of this communion with all of the saints the suffering that goes on. When I read and hear about the church of Ukraine or the church in Poland or the church in Africa, the church anywhere else, going through suffering... I should feel suffering for and with them. Now, what I do about that uh, is uh, more of what, what uh, the further paragraphs in this chapter have to do. Let's move on uh, to another question still in this first paragraph of chapter 26 of the Confession. Since every Christian is united to Christ in love, every Christian is also therefore united to every other Christian in love. Uh, what what the confession is doing here is, is closing the circle. Uh, I can't, I'm not an individual Christian, although technically that is the case. That is never the case biblically for me to conceive of myself as an individual. Apart from the body of Christ, I need the body of Christ. I remember we talked about this a little bit in, in chapter 25, the whole notion that a church is composed of people that God has brought together, each with gifts that are needed by everyone in the building, everyone in the communion of that church. 
Now that uh, paragraph also goes on to say that this union with our fellow believers brings us uh, into concern not only for the inner man, that is the spiritual aspects of what we are about, building one another of us up in our faith and in our walk with the Lord, but also with the outer man, knowing the needs and wisely meeting those needs when, where, and how is appropriate to do so. Chad Van Dixhorn again says it this way, this love for each other cannot be restricted to what we have. It needs to encompass who we are. Now there, out of that large uh, listing under that uh, first paragraph, there are a couple of, the, the, the last two passages, one of them is the book of First John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. That reads this way. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is an aspect of that communion of the saints. Uh, The other passage that uh, concludes it from the book of Galatians, uh, near the end of the book, chapter 6, Galatians, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Again, many, many passages speak to this notion of the communion of the saints. Now that uh, will bring us to the second paragraph of this chapter, which reads like this. Saints, by profession, are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God. And in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things, according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion, as God offers opportunity, is to be extended unto all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. This is uh, getting a little bit deeper into the aspect we just looked at in the first paragraph. Uh, This communion with and to Jesus Christ and to our fellow believers is especially enjoined in the aspect of worship. When we worship according to God's word, we enjoy this holy fellowship and communion. And you know, every single Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, when you're in the church, and you're in the context of worship and the hymns that are, the words of the hymns, the way the Holy Spirit will touch every heart and apply exactly the words of a hymn or the words from the sermon or the words from from confessions, whatever it might be, uh, to lift that experience up, it is a critical aspect of communion of the saints is the corporate worship of God's people. Now, COVID last couple of years, came in and shut a lot of that down. And 
we can argue about how much it should have or, or whatever. There is no doubt that it was a legitimate pandemic, that there were those who would be at risk of their lives had they ventured forth in the public. However, it's incumbent upon Christians everywhere to renew the joy of holy fellowship and communion by the restoring of corporate worship. The problem is, of course, it was very handy to stay at home. And we, uh, at this church in particular, I guess many, perhaps most churches these days, you have the opportunity to stream it or uh, whatever and still be uh, a participant of sorts. But it is not the same. I am not telling you to risk your life, uh, but I am telling you that the that the aspect of the communion of the saints comes up short if you do not join your brothers and sisters physically present in the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, one of the passages they cite. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now that was the first opening salvo of that second paragraph. The second one gets into what uh, areas we might call or think of as diaconal uh, ministry, the second injunction. A diaconal ministry covers uh, enormous, uh, enormous subject matter, uh, far more than, than we're going to get into tonight, but I just want to give you a personal story that, that happened to me. I was at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. I graduated, <clears throat> and the, the president, wonderful, wonderful friend, a uh, man named George Fuller, the president at that time, he said, I want you to be the vice president for development. And I said, develop what? What is, what is development? What does that mean? <clears throat> he said, well, I'm not really sure. I said, oh, okay, that's a clear job description. Uh, can we flesh this out a bit? And we, we talked. He had just become uh, the second president at Westminster. And uh, I was intrigued by it, said yes, signed on the dotted line. And I'll never forget the very first day that, that he and I were together, uh, trying to figure out what is this this notion of advancement work, development work, fundraising, alumni relations, church church relations, uh, all these kinds of things. Uh, how do you do it? Now, this was uh, 1984. This is before computers. I know that's impossible to imagine. Uh, we had telephones. That's all we had. We didn't have... We didn't have little things in our hands and all these other gizmos and gadgets. Uh, this was going to be tough work. So we both got in his office and said, what do, you, what do you do? What's the first step? And we didn't have a clue. We said, well, let's go get the receipts. Let's go get the handwritten cards that had been kept of anybody that had ever made a gift to Westminster Seminary since its beginning in September of 1929. This is 1984. Every single gift was handwritten on, on these note cards. So we got all these note cards, big stack in the middle of the desk there. 
And we started looking through them, and, and uh, Dr. Fuller said, what are we looking for? I said, I'm not sure. Uh, I said, what do you think you're looking for? You're the president. Uh, he said, I don't know either, but I think we'll know it when we see it. So we keep looking through this, and I stumbled across a card <clears throat> from someone I didn't know. I'd never heard of them. Uh, not surprising. I'd, they lived in Antlers, Oklahoma, and they had given $30 every single month to Westminster Seminary from October of 1929. Never missed a month. I showed that, uh, we, we both looked at that card and we both agreed, whatever that person, whatever's motivating that person, that's the answer to the question. We need to know what it is that that person has, has done. Uh, what, what it is they think, what it is, uh, why they're doing this from Antlers, Oklahoma. So I got on an airplane and found Antlers, Oklahoma. It's in the southeastern corner of Oklahoma. Now, I had never been to the state of Oklahoma at that point in time and didn't realize that the entire southeastern corner of Oklahoma is an Indian reservation. It's where we put the, when we took the Cherokees on their trail of tears and the Choctaws and the Creeks, we tried to find the most worthless piece of real estate in America. And that was Southeast Oklahoma in the eyes of those who were in charge at that point. So they're on this reservation and I'm driving a car and I'm thinking an Indian resident, this is getting interesting. And I find the address and there's a little Airstream trailer, the, the smallest Airstream about about the length of this stage, nestled back in this little grove of, of oaks, <clears throat> scrubby oaks. Whoever lived there had done a little bit of uh, home renovation. They had taken a blowtorch and put two vertical slits down the side, peeled the side up, propped it up. That was their building to their home. I knocked on the door of this little trailer, and a woman uh, came and greeted me. It'll be hard for me to get through this story. I spent the whole the whole day uh, with this uh, wonderful, wonderful Christian. We went grocery shopping. We went uh, all over the reservation. She was a nurse, and when her husband had died, she went to this reservation to be a missionary. By the end of the day, it was about six at night, <clears throat> and I was taking my leave. I made a fatal mistake. I said. And Ms. So-and-so, I see what you're doing here. And my sense is you need this $30 a month, a whole lot more than Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia needs. So why don't you just keep it and use it on the reservation? <laughs> then came my education. She says, young man, sit down. <laughs> I thought I was out the door. Not so. She, she sits me down. She pulls her Bible out and she opens 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. If you want to understand diaconal work, you read those two chapters because those are Gentiles in poverty in Macedonia who even in their poverty give to the Jewish believers back in Jerusalem. It's the illustration of what Paul is talking about in Ephesians. It is the quintessential illustration of what communion of the saints means. 
Uh, the, the low, my low point in that one, uh, which actually was a high point that, that, um, that I used the next 20 years of my work and development. She says, you're robbing me of the joy of giving. And she helped me see something about the saints and the communion of the saints. Uh, here she is on, on an Indian reservation. And I'm, anyway, <clears throat> Uh, all of these kinds of things are wrapped up in, in what we mean by communion of the saints. Now, this gets us to the third and the final uh, paragraph here, which is very uh, odd in a way. Uh, the third, third paragraph says this, This communion which the saints have with Christ does not make them in any wise partakers of the substance of his Godhead or to be equal with Christ in any respect, either of which to affirm is impious and blasphemous. Nor does their communion one with another as saints take away or infringe the title or propriety which each man has in his goods and possessions. So what you get in this third paragraph, this concluding paragraph, are two very, very strong denials. Uh, the first one is this union with Christ does not mean that saints are equal to Christ or that we become in somehow deified uh, by this. What it does mean is that as we function in, as a body of believers in the communion one with another, in the love we give to each other, the love we give to, to the Godhead, we are building up that thing we call the image of God that we are created in. Successively, over the years, as we expand and grow with our hearts and our minds and in our behavior of love one toward another, uh, this, uh, this aspect grows in our image-bearing witness to Christ. The second negation of this third paragraph, uh, union with Christ and all the behaviors of communion of the saints does not erode or destroy the integrity of the individual. In particular, the notion of property. Now, why in the world, how, how could you put paragraph one, paragraph two, and then end this way? Well, again, I think it's an aspect of the historicity of this assembly. We've seen this in the last two uh, successive weeks, the fact that, that England, it, almost exactly in the timing of the Westminster Assembly, roughly 1640 to 1650, uh, plus a year or two, were the English Civil Wars, three of them, about a year and a half apart, and they were awful. People were murdering each other. The church was banging heads. The Scots fighting the English, the English fighting the Irish. The Catholics were coming in. You remember we saw that stridency in the confession about Roman Catholicism. It's because the Roman Catholics were trying to take control of the country. We in America don't understand that. We've, until recent days at least, we've had oceans that protected us. If you live in England, you're 20 miles away from a country that has already invaded you and wants nothing more than to come in again and eradicate your religion and replace it with one that you think is absolutely apocryphal and unbiblical. Imagine if somewhere around Easley there was a foreign power, not, not just 
some mean-spirited people, but a country starting at Easley that wanted your demise. I think if that were the case, we would probably be a little bit aware of that, and it might filter into some of the things we wrote and spoke. This is what's going on here. There were groups in England during the Westminster Assembly called diggers. Diggers were socialists. Diggers were people that uh, they got their name by going out and digging uh, in uh, various places in order to have what we might today call a commune. there, were, there was another group called the Levelers. The Levelers uh, split, and the group that became, that called themselves True Levelers, also thought that the concept of property was spoken against Scripture. I'll read you one passage that they get that from Acts chapter 4. You can read something very similar in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, but here's what Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 35. Uh, says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, from that passage, these particular groups uh, instituted what we would uh, interpret today as socialism. Uh, These two passages are in fact describing a spirit-produced unity and love and compassion among believers by a readiness to part with their property in order to relieve the needs of others. Exactly what we read in the powerful responses brought about by union with Christ in the fellowship of believers. Dennis Johnson puts it this way, a reflex of love towards God's family. Nothing wrong with that. Indeed, interestingly, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 4 to 5 say this, But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, if if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment uh, that I command you today. Uh, So uh, how do we take this? Were they right? Maybe the levelers were right. Maybe the diggers were right. Dennis Johnson, however, continues this way. This sharing of possessions was not required for church membership. Such open-handed generosity is, however, symptomatic of hearts set free from the tyranny of mammon. And then Johnson has this very penetrating insight. Does your heart know this freedom? Or does money and the fear of its loss still hold you in chains? That's a very, very important consideration. Um, I have uh, I have here so many notes. I go into <laughs> socialism. I've got quotes from uh, Washington, Madison, Hamilton, uh, Jefferson. I don't have to tell you about socialism if you read any newspapers or look at the news these days. This country that we are living in thinks that's the way to go. Every socialist attempt 
whether diggers, levelers, doesn't matter, Plato in the ancient uh, Greek world, every single one of them ends exactly the same way, and that's with famine, disaster, and death. Every single one of them, without exception, and it will happen here if we think we're so smart, we can do it differently. Uh, So enough about that foolishness. Now let me conclude on the back of your handout, at the bottom third or two-thirds or whatever, I've, I've given you that phrase again, union with Christ. That is the essence of chapter 26. That's what we're talking about, union with Christ, which brings about this communion of the saints, this, this uh, wonderful uh, knowledge that we are a part of one another. I'll tell you how you can feel this viscerally. I, I, f- I feel it every time we have a, a missionary who comes to speak to us. I feel it every time I get around a, a person who is a believer, a genuine believer in Christ. I might be in an airport someplace. I might be who knows where. If I know this person is a believer in Jesus Christ, I feel a bond to that person stronger than any bond I feel toward my own family. And, and every Christian is like that. We, we know when we're in the presence of true brothers and sisters. Because of this union with Christ, we are all united. That passage again, we read that um, sort of taproot passage from Ephesians 2 and 3. The Apostle Paul uses phrases like in Christ, with Christ, in union with Christ 200 times in his writings in the New Testament. Being united to Christ lies at the basis of all God's dealings with his people for their salvation from eternity past to eternity future and all points in between. Union with Christ is the essence of every discussion you will ever have with yourself or with others about salvation in Jesus Christ. It's all about being united to Christ. John Murray makes this statement. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, not only in its application, but also in its once and for all accomplishment in the finished work of Christ. Its orbit has two foci, One, the electing love of God the Father in the councils of eternity. The other, glorification with Christ in the manifestation of his glory. So you've got eternity past. That's the opening of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, all the way to sharing in Christ's glory when we each go home to be with the Lord. And all points in between. The electing love of the Father has no beginning. The glorification with Christ has no end. It's in the present, sort of the meat of the sandwich, if you will, where we all live. So let's look very briefly. Uh, basically, four concepts, I've put them on your handout there, that, that um, pretty much uh, summarize this notion of what union with Christ means today in your life and in my life. Number one, it's a spiritual union. It's bonded by the Holy Spirit Because it's bonded by the Holy Spirit, it's therefore bonded to to, uh, Jesus Christ. Secondly, it's a mystical union. It was kept secret from eternity. That's why Paul can't get over it. Paul has just been let in on the mystery, as he's describing in Ephesians, and he's he's floored, he's, he's flabbergasted, and he keeps going back and back and back. The guy who is trying to eradicate the church has realized that it is the core of the plan of God from eternity past. So it's mystical. Thirdly, it's Trinitarian. 
Anytime you're united to Jesus Christ, it's because you're united to the Holy Spirit, and therefore you're also just as united with God the Father. So this is a Trinitarian aspect. And fourthly, finally, it's familial, expressed by this 26th chapter. You might also read the 12th chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is about being adopted into the family of God. Westminster Confession is the only one of the major confessions that ever had a separate subject matter treatment of this notion of adoption. Why? Because we have become a family. Because we can now climb up into the lap of God and look into his face and say, Abba, Father. So all of these issues come together in this little bitty chapter, little bitty chapter that's, as I say, so often ignored passed over so quickly because, uh, boy, there's a lot juicier thing. Well, I would suggest to you, you will not live one more minute of your life on this planet that you are not involved, knowingly or unknowingly, well or less than well, with the aspects of the fact that you are united to Jesus Christ, your Savior. And we strengthen ourselves, we strengthen the church, we strengthen the body of believers everywhere as we respond and live our lives in the faithful coherence and adherence to the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, this, uh, this little chapter uh, really has long, long tentacles, and in point of fact, we cannot escape them. But what we ask, Father, is that you would make us aware of them, that we would know what it means to be your children, your sons, your daughters. And as we raise our own sons, our own daughters, and our families, Father, again, the, this family, this, this, this unit that you've given us on this earth is a thin, thin reflection, but it nonetheless is an accurate reflection as far as it goes among sinful people of this larger notion of union with Christ and the body of the church. Father, how we thank you that you have graced us for no reason in us, but from eternity past. You've guaranteed us an eternity future. Help us to live in the present with the love of Jesus Christ evident so that any unbeliever who runs into each of us in this room now might say, I don't understand the Bible, I don't know who Jesus is, but I can tell you one thing, that person loved me. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.